chapter 1 and verse 1. I am uh, I'm excited to start this book today, and we're going to be taking a brief overview of it. Having turned there, let's pray, and then we will maybe do something new, but we will read the book of Colossians. Heavenly Father, we, we come again to turn to you. We need desperately to hear you. Lord, we have brought a sacrifice of praise. Um, we have prayed and, and sought your hand And now in your word, we seek your face. Lord, we want more than just what you do. We want to know you. We want to behold you. We want to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would hear, or that you would reveal yourself to us through it, that we would have open hearts and uh, open ears to hear your word, to receive it, to to obey it. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is characterized uh, by repentance, as that is the, uh, the prime characteristic of a believer. Not that we're perfect, but that when we wrong, we, we confess, we admit that we are wrong. Lord, may we as a church confess corporately when we sin, and individually may we confess when we sin that we would agree with you that our actions are wrong, and may we repent of those things and, and turn to you and receive forgiveness and healing. Lord, we pray this morning for Heritage Baptist and for uh, Pastor Kevin as he uh, seeks how to lead that flock as well. Lord, we pray that you would give them great faithfulness to the gospel and us as well, that you would bless us in accordance with our faithfulness to the gospel. Lord, that they and us would, uh, would seek to be gentle with, uh, with your people, uh, with each other, even sometimes with ourselves, um, certainly with the world around us, Lord. May we, um, may we be careful not to present you as harsh and exacting, but as humble and gentle and giving and glorious and holy and all of those things. Lord, we pray today also for Ted and Renati Rubish as they continue their uh, ministry. Lord, we thank you for uh, the extension of their visas. Lord, we thank you for the praises that they uh, have shared with us that online classes are currently making uh, these pastoral leadership classes larger than ever. We thank you for the extended outreach and ministry that they have. Lord, as there's potential for a home assignment coming up, we ask that you would give wisdom there and direct their steps and do what's good for them and good for the work that they are doing and good for your glory. Lord, uh, as, as there are many uh, in Sri Lanka who are struggling to provide for families and who are discouraged by certain situations, Lord, we ask that you, would, um, that you would just be with those people there, that they would have opportunity to work, opportunity to provide, opportunity to, uh, to eat and to care for their families. Lord, that the church may be a great witness to your, your goodness, and as it struggles to have leadership, Lord, we pray that you would uh, use them to develop and build leaders in that area. And as they mentor young men, Lord, that you would raise these men up to be humble uh, and, and uh, humble leaders of your church and faithful to explain your word. Lord, we ask for uh, just blessing on Renati as she finishes her uh, counseling program as well. Lord, let the word, your word, go out from us. May it sound forth into the world uh, as, as it did from Thessalonica, may it so be with us that uh, that people might hear of us, hear of our faith, hear of our trust, and that your word might go out into the world around us and that people would be saved, Lord. Lord, uh, show us your glory through this uh, short book today, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. But follow along with me, and I may read rather quickly as, uh, as I want to move through it, but we're going to read the whole book of Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of, tr- of, in the, word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, 
since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent." For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggle with all, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have appearance, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything that those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be repaid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you, about, tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear, 
For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This has been a most interesting week on many fronts and in in many ways, Um, but I I think maybe one of the most uh, unusual, at least for us, though I think if we do a survey of of American history, it's really not all that unusual. This is not the first time, I, I think it's been a strange political season. This is not the first time an election has been challenged. It, it, it is not, uh, it would not be the first time had it happened that electoral votes were struck down. It's not the first time that there's been political divisiveness. It's been a strange and newsworthy week in our country, in our community, maybe even in our world. And, and I think, and I, I think I'm going to blog on this, so I'm not going to elaborate on this today, but I think maybe politics and COVID, at least in any of our lifetimes, has, for believers, revealed more precisely where our hope lies than anything else in any other time in in our lives. I don't want to be political here. That's not my point. Here's my point. My point is this, and and I think this applies to both sides of the aisle. I'm not picking or choosing. But, But I think there's something built into politics something that's woven into the fabric of it that that reveals some of what Paul addresses here in Colossians. And I think what is woven into our political system is simultaneously both true and untrue. That sounds like a contradiction, but it's not, and I'll unpack that in a minute. But here's what I think is woven into the fabric of politics. People cannot change. People can't change. All you have to do if you want to disqualify a political candidate is find something that they wrote or said or did, maybe even 40 years in the past, and you can destroy a political career. Even if they say, I don't believe that anymore, or that was wrong, or I did believe that at the time and I do not believe it now, uh, it, it can virtually destroy uh, another career or somebody else's political career. And the truth of the matter is, Scripture confirms this. Scripture confirms it. Jeremiah 13, 23, uh, through the prophet Jeremiah, God, this is uh, uh, pre-Judah exile, so through the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Judah, God is threatening them with exile. He says, you're sinning, you're disobeying my law, you're breaking the covenant, and you need to stop. And if you don't, I'm going to send you into exile in this foreign nation. And then in Jeremiah 13, 23, God, through the prophet, says this, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Those who are accustomed to doing evil, which is every single one of us, uh, apart from Christ, we are so accustomed to evil that we can't do good, at least not good that will please God uh, ultimately, any more than the Ethiopian can change the color of his skin or the leopard his spots. The bottom line of what God is saying is not that everybody is as bad as they could be, but that we are powerless to stop sinning. Sure, people stop bad habits but usually there's just a, a transference of habits, right? I, I abandoned one habit only to pick up another. You might be told to chew gum if you want to quit smoking or who knows what. But, but usually bad habits are just replaced. And I, I would never say that AA or NA or counseling can't be helpful. They can. But what they can never do is under, address the underlying issue of sin in our hearts. And yet, the flip side to that coin is that Scripture is so convinced that people can change that it uses words like born again, 
that we have been taken from death to life, that you who were dead in your trespasses and sins have been raised to newness of life. In Col- or here, right here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, And you who were, past tense, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all your trespasses. And in chapter 3 and 4 of Colossians, we see this instruction on how to live this new life. Even though we've been raised to life, even though we've been given new life by God, there are still remaining uh, factors, sins, uh, failures in our flesh that need put to death. And so we're told to put to death these things that are earthly in us in chapter 3, verse 5. And then in chapter 3, verse 12, we're told to put on. It's, it's clothing language that we're to take off, as we're told in Hebrews, the sin that so easily entangles us. And here, to put on as God's chosen ones who are holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I think we could all, at least I could uh, testify to the fact that this change, living into this newness of life, uh, it doesn't come quickly. It doesn't come quickly at all. And God, uh, I want to be clear about this. Listen carefully. Nowhere in Scripture are we promised that when we come to have faith in Jesus Christ, that our struggle with sin will be over. And yet, I think oftentimes today, the church wants to categorize sins. Jerry Bridges called these respectable sins. There are some some sins that are respectable to bring through the church's doors and some sins that are irrespectable. There are some struggles with sin that we say, oh, if you're a believer, God's going to take that struggle away cold turkey. But there's no promise of that in Scripture. And in fact, I think all of our experiences would say that the church shouldn't even ever present this as expected or normal. Change comes slowly. But I think one of the big pressing questions before us, as I said, is can people change? And the answer, according to Colossians, according to the New Testament, according to God's Word, is on your own, no. But in Christ, yes. I think if we, we ask the question, can people change, we must then ask the question, how do people change? And we will come back to that question at the end of this message today, because I think Paul in Colossians, and in many other places in the New Testament, by the way, he answers that question for us. But as we introduce this little book that we're going to look at over the next 19 weeks, I think, uh, I, I want us to give uh, to give us some. Ba- I want to give you some background and structure of the book, so that we can all stand it, uh, understand it a little better. You don't have these in your notes, but if you're a note taker, we're going to look first at the author, then the recipients, then the occasion. That is why Paul wrote this, and lastly, the structure of the book. So first, the author. Who wrote the book of Colossians? Simply put, the Apostle Paul wrote it. It begins with those words, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So Paul and Timothy together with him wrote this. Paul being a, a former Pharisee, that is a, an, an expert in Jewish law, but we have to remember that, that Israel was designed by God really to be a theocracy. And so to be an expert in Jewish law was to be an expert in church law. And the 600 plus laws that they had come up with, uh, in, in, uh, or the 600 plus laws that are in the Old Testament, they had sought very, very exacting ways to apply these. There was instructions as to how far you could walk on a Sabbath, what you could and could not prepare on a Sabbath. I went to Israel. One of the things you cannot find in Israel is a cheeseburger anywhere. And in fact, everywhere you go, every hotel, every restaurant, they have two kitchens. One kitchen, they prepare lunch and dinner in, and those, uh, those meals involve meat. And for breakfast, there's dairy, and so you have to cook that in another kitchen. And you can't ever have any mingling of milk and meat. 
And in fact, the day we arrived in Israel was somebody's birthday who was going with us. And so we wanted to have a cake supplied. And, and they were so, it was incredibly hard to have a birthday cake at the hotel waiting for us. Because it had to be certified kosher, which means it had to be made in a bakery that was overseen by a rabbi. And that rabbi had to certify that there was no milk used in the making of that cake. And every place you go, that is the hotels, when they have a kitchen, there's a rabbi who works in the kitchen to oversee all of these dietary laws. Now, all of that comes from one verse in the Old Testament, it says, you shall not boil a kid, that is a young goat, in its mother's milk. This is the extent to which the law was applied. This is the extent to which Paul was learning to apply the law and was exceedingly good at it. And God uh, came instantly and miraculously and saved him and raised him up to be the evangelist who wrote this book. Paul the former Jewish Pharisee, commissioned by Jesus himself, evangelist to the Gentiles, never went to Colossae. He was never there. In fact, it makes, this is pretty clear at the beginning of chapter 2, but it's a place to which he had never gone. Secondly, let's look at the recipients. Well, the recipients, that's simple. It is the church that met in the town of Colossae. Now, at the time of Paul's writing here, uh, some close to 2,000 years ago, Colossae was a small town. It had not always been a small town. It was uh, right on the banks of the Lycus River in the Lycus River Valley in the Roman province of Asia, which we would think of today as modern-day Turkey. And, and the, there was a trade route that went right through the town of Colossae, and so it was a large and bustling town. And if you look at history written, Greek history written before the New Testament, you can see that this was an exceedingly important town. But if you've watched the Disney movie, I think it's Disney movie, Cars, help me out if it's not Disney, it's Pixar at least maybe, I don't know, it doesn't matter. But if you've seen Cars, you know exactly what happened to Colossae. The road route changed. And so now all the trade and all the traffic that was going through the town of Colossae was no longer going through the town, and it had begun slowly over time to diminish in size, to shrink, ultimately to completely depopulate, and to now stand only in ruins. It was so insignificant, in fact, at the time of the writing of this book, when Paul sends this letter to that church, that there is no mention anywhere else in the New Testament of Colossae. This is the only mention in the New Testament by, in this book that, uh, that bears its name. It was about 10 miles east of Ephesus, uh, also about 10 miles away from Laodicea and 13 miles from Hierapolis, which are both other towns mentioned in the book. Actually, all three are mentioned in this book. And it's most likely that a path, while, while Paul was ministering and pastoring and church planting in Ephesus, that Epaphras became a believer and carried the gospel to, and not in writing, but probably in word, carried the gospel from Ephesus to Colossae, and then this church was founded. I think there's something really important that we have to note here, and that is that from the beginning of the church, there was high priority placed on taking the gospel to places where it had never been heard. Epaphras, living in Ephesus, hometown being Colossae, 10 miles away. That's a long way back then, by the way. You're walking on foot on dangerous roads. He hears the gospel. He believes. And his natural reaction is to leave Ephesus, go to Colossae, and say, there's a message I must tell you. The gospel was meant to go. It was always meant to go. And it was meant to go by you and me. Our ministry as a church is not complete when we're done with the service on Sunday morning. It's just beginning. In many ways, church uh, is it's not only this. I don't want to reduce it to this. But in many ways, the church is a gas station where we come, we gather, we fill up, we recharge, we feast on God's word, and we leave full so that we might go out and empty ourselves of what God has given us into the world around us. The gospel was meant to go, and the, the church in Colossae exists because the gospel went. It went from Ephesus to Colossae to Laodicea to Hierapolis. 
Thirdly, the occasion. So Paul was the author. The church in Colossae is the, uh, the recipients. What's the occasion? Why did Paul write this letter? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire him to send this letter to the Colossians? Well, Paul doesn't tell us I'm writing to you because, but as we look at the text, there's a lot of background and clues in the text that give us an understanding of why he may have written it. Apparently, Epaphras reported to Paul, who at the writing of this book was in prison. We don't know where he was in prison. He's not yet in the Roman prison later in his life before he he died, but Paul has been arrested, he's in prison, and, and there's some problems that have arisen in the church. Mostly, these problems are, are a matter of false teaching in the church. I would say that false teaching is, uh, is Satan's number one tactic. And we oftentimes maybe don't give as much attention to it as we should. But when, he, when Satan wants to tempt Adam and Eve, and he does so successfully, he introduces some lie into a lot of And he does the same thing when he tempts Jesus in the garden. Usually what he does also is he he gets our attention off of the consequences and onto the offer. It's really easy to do, right? Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. They have everything they need. What does Satan do? He offers them something they can't have. and, And he hides the consequences for them. It's just a side note. Maybe when faced with sin, when struggling with temptation, don't think of what the sin has to offer. Think of what it will cost. But I want to draw out five things from this book about this false teaching, and I think we'll we'll be able to do so fairly quickly. Number one, the false teaching professed to be philosophy. In verse two, eight, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Uh, in, in Greek language, the word philosophy simply means love of knowledge. And then Paul goes on here to say that that philosophy is empty deceit. Not all that claims to be knowledge is knowledge. Later he talks about plausible arguments. There is much out there that is plausible But what God has taught us, what what is in the truth of the gospel, is what is good. And so whatever this false teaching was, it professed to be philosophy. It professed to be deep thinking. It professed to be a love of knowledge. Secondly, it placed emphasis on ritualism as means of pleasing God. And and I'm not going to read all of it to you again, but as we look at verses 11 through 19 of chapter 2, we see that there's a lot of legal demands. Here's, Here's how this creeps up in our own hearts and in our own minds. If I do this, or if I don't do this, God will love me more. Oh, if I refrain from that sin, God will love me more. If I live according to this pattern of law, God will love me more. Now, now don't get me wrong. I think God, based upon how we live, how much we sin, how much we love him over our sin, may be more and less pleased with us. But the sole basis for God's affection for us is Jesus Christ. He loves us because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And I don't, mean, I don't mean that God had no affection for us before Jesus died, but I mean love as the active pursuit of one's good. God loves you not because of what you do or don't do. He loves you because of who he is and because of what he has done. But there's this, there's this great desire built into us to contribute to our salvation rather than to receive it for free. Somehow, there's, we've been taught there's no such thing as a free lunch. There's a, a great pride deep in many Americans that is unwilling to accept anything for free. Maybe if you've checked your bank account lately, we would understand that those times are changing. But there was a time when the idea of a free handout would have assaulted people's pride. We have to contribute. We have to work. We have to do something. And here's the picture. But, but God says, no, that's not how this works. Salvation is free. Here's the picture that often comes to my mind. Imagine you, you go to a birthday party for a friend, your closest, dearest, lifelong friend. And you had the greatest idea in the world for a birthday gift. And you buy the gift. 
And you know it's something they would never buy on their own, or maybe even never could buy on their own, couldn't even find on their own, but this is the perfect thing. And you buy it, you purchase it for them because it's completely out of their grasp. You go to their birthday party, you give them the present, they open the present, there's joy in your heart over giving this gift to them, there's excitement about their receiving of it, they open the gift, they love it, and they go like this. How do you feel in that moment? Is that a joyful experience? Is that the response you want them to have to this gift that you bought that they couldn't? Or do you want them to simply receive it with joy and with gratitude? God delights in giving salvation for free. And this, this philosophy insisted on adding its own works to contribute. But salvation is all of God and all of grace. The reality is, is that you and I contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. But what's the confusing part for us is that while salvation is an absolutely free gift of God sanctification, that is being conformed into the image of God, living in that newness of life, working towards the change that the gospel promises to us, that is a cooperative effort. And so we receive his forgiveness as a gift, and we work cooperatively with him to live into it, to be the people whom he has called us to be. Chapter 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, is an imperative. We are to put to death what is earthly in us. And then in verse 12, we are to put on as God's chosen one these list of characteristics here. So it insisted on works as a means of pleasing God. It also, thirdly, insisted on the worship of angels. And we see this in chapter 2, verses 15 and 18. These angels were probably seen as intermediaries. They didn't wholly reject Christ, but it just shifted the focus on other things. We see this everywhere today. The worship of angels is everywhere in our culture. We hear things when somebody passes away like, heaven needed another angel. It'd be like telling an army general that, you know, the army needs another private. Go, go sign up, bud. I don't think we grasp how far a step down from sons and daughters of God to servants of God, human to angel, is. Angels have no opportunity for salvation. Angels have no opportunity to, to be adopted into the family of God. Angels were not created in the image of God. And yet somehow we've elevated the idea of angels above what it means to be a human. I'm not sure exactly what this, uh, this heresy was, but uh, uh, more than 100 years ago, Mole said, one thing is certain as to the Colossian heresy. It was a doctrine of God and of salvation that cast a cloud over the glory of Jesus Christ. And in fact, I would say there's an incredible modern-day correlation, if you will, between the Colossian heresy and the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, which believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which believes in salvation by grace, but not through faith alone. You have to confess, you have to work, you have to do certain things. There are sins that can disqualify you and actions whereby you earn grace and earn God's favor. And so there's this mingling of what Jesus has done for you and what you do in order to be saved. And, and much like the worship of angels, they insist upon the veneration of saints and of Mary and prayer is shifted to them. Whatever is certain of the Colossian heresy, it was a doctrine of God and salvation that cast a cloud over the glory of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is clear. We're going to cooperate with God to be conformed into his image. 
But being made alive in Christ is all of God and all of grace. Fourthly, it was asceticism. It was asceticism, uh, and Paul uses that language here. Simply put, this simply means that, that it was a fundamental belief that the flesh is corrupt. Now, uh, or let me rephrase that, that the flesh is evil. And we would agree that the flesh is corrupt. And, and with Paul, we would say, uh, oh, wretched man that I am, who will, who will set me free from this body of death? And, and we are awaiting bodies that are perfected. But, there, but, but the flesh is not inherently evil. Jesus, having no sin and no evil, became a man born in the flesh. Adam and Eve, before sin, were created as physical beings. Jesus still has a physical, resurrected, glorified body today, and we will someday as well. And so while we live in a cursed world in our fallen flesh... Flesh in and of itself is not inherently evil. And so they were teaching this idea that all flesh and everything fleshly is bad and all, everything spiritual and only spiritual was good. And this is simply not true. God designed both as good and we have broken them both. And lastly, and maybe most importantly, and we see this in chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. Again, I'm not going to read it again. The false, the false teachers claimed to be Christian. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you take any warning from today, let it be this. Not all of what claims to be Christian is. Not all of what claims to be Christian is. Uh, going back all the way to Deuteronomy, the number one test of a prophet, even if he could perform signs and miracles, was the test of truth. There are some obvious indicators of false teachers, and one of the biggest ones we have seen here is that they focus on something other than Jesus Christ. We don't have to talk about Jesus and his death and resurrection and his substitutionary atonement. We're just going to talk about having your best life now. It's hope placed in the wrong place. Not all of what claims to be Christian is. The gospel of Jesus Christ must have center stage in his church. He, God eternal, who created us, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the prototokos, the primary, the most important, not the first created thing, but the highest priority, the, the, the firstborn of all creation, the creator of all things that exist apart from God became part of his creation. And he perfectly lived all of those laws because we're lawbreakers. We, being sinners, deserved to die. He, being righteous, did not. And yet he died in our place so that by faith we might, and, and as we see in the picture of baptism, be buried with him in death and raised with him in newness of life. And so that we as sinners get treated as, the righteous, as though we are righteous because Jesus Christ, the righteous, was treated as he was a sinner. Oh, what a horrible thing it would be if the church eclipses that truth. We rob the world. We rob even the church. And fourthly, lastly, the structure. This is where we ask the question, uh, or, or where we see the answer to the question, how do people change? And the book of Colossians is structured the same way as every other Pauline letter except one. It's the, the book of Philemon, and the book of Philemon is connected to Colossians. But, but it, except for Philemon, the 12 other epistles, these letters that Paul wrote, every single one of them is structured the same way. The first half or so, sometimes even more, is exposition. It is the giving of truth. He is telling us something true about God, what he has done for us, and the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. And none of them skip over the gospel. It is upheld front and center in every single one right from the opening verses. And then we get exhortation, that is what to do with it. How do people change? Jesus Christ. We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what we're told in 2 Corinthians, that beholding his glory, we are being transformed from one 
in one glory to the next, from, from one image to the next. And I meant to put it in my notes, and somehow I left it out, and so I'm not going to try and dig through 2 Corinthians. But it is clear that beholding his glory, we are transformed from one image of glory to another. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that beholding his word, taking his word in, being transformed in our minds, we live holy lives, which is our, our spiritual service of worship to God. We don't ever change by simple white-knuckle discipline, by expanding the number of rules that we have, by New Year's resolutions, because those go really well for most of us, right? We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We preach Christ and Him crucified. We guard against the danger that wells up in us to either contribute to our salvation or to feel like we deserve our salvation. We never cease to wonder and marvel at Jesus Christ and who he is. The gospel, must, the gospel isn't just for non-believers, in other words. It's not just for people who need to be saved. The gospel is for sinners who need to be transformed into saints, and the gospel is for saints who need to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that saves sinners, and it is the gospel that transforms believers it is the gospel that gives life, and it is the gospel that teaches us to live into that life that we have. We can't ever assume the gospel. We must speak it clearly. The gospel cannot linger in the background of the church, assuming that everybody understands the gospel. We must clarify always what Jesus Christ has done for us. It must have center stage. Do you hear the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in every Sunday sermon? You should expect to. And you should hold me and anybody else who stands up here accountable to it. When your growth group gathers, is the gospel rehearsed clearly? If not, then something is missing. Can you show up to any adult Bible class on a Sunday morning and hear the gospel if not, you should. If Chris or Dan or Dwayne or, or others don't, say so lovingly. Brother, I'm not sure the gospel was clear there. Do our young adults hear the gospel weekly at, at the gathering? Ask Mark. I'm sure he'd be happy to tell you. Do the youth hear the gospel every teaching time there is at Trinity Youth? Guys, we don't need, our youth don't need, our children don't need, we don't need some moralistic, therapeutic deism. We need Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do our children hear the gospel every single time they go to Sunday school? Every week in Trinity Kids. They should. Moral lessons make for very nice, unregenerate, hell-bound sinners. We need the gospel. We are transformed by beholding the glory, the majesty, the beauty of Jesus Christ. Here's the passage. I don't know what I was thinking when I put it in this order in my notes. 1 Corinthians 3.18. Uh, no, that's not it. it must have been uh, 4.18 and I typed it wrong. But anyways, it's not us who changes. In fact, I am going to turn there. If you want to turn there, turn with me and we're, we're almost done. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 18. Oh, I put it as 1 Corinthians, that's why. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How do you get conformed, transformed into the image of Christ? You behold Christ over and over and over and over again. And we will see what we have to do to live into that, how to put to death what is earthly within us, how to bring to life what God, the new life that God has given us. But we should never forget, as this verse in first, or 2 Corinthians closes, for this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. We behold Christ, and he changes us. 
We behold the glory of the Lord, and we're transformed into that image. We behold the gospel, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And over the next 19 weeks or so, we are going to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Colossians is all about Jesus, and gloriously so. I think we'll be changed for it, and I hope it will be exciting for all of us as we see just how wonderful he is. Lord, may your gospel May the truth of what you have done always stand front and center at the fore of what we do as a church. May we preach the gospel, speak the gospel, share the gospel, rehearse the gospel, remind ourselves of the gospel, that it is not us who deserves salvation or who has earned it, that the only thing we have contributed is our sin that makes it necessary, and that all of grace and all by you and all for your glory, you have redeemed us and saved us and caused us to be born again and given us a living hope and called us to then put to death what is earthly within us, to see real and true and lasting change, but as we behold your glory. Lord, may we, we always speak clearly the gospel. May it never go assumed. May we not be so naive as to think that all that claims to be Christian is. May we have a holy discontent with anything that eclipses your glory. And would you use your gospel to call sinners to yourself through us, but also to mature us in our faith in Jesus Christ? Lord, if there is anyone here today who has not trusted you, who has not admitted the sinfulness of their sin, who has not trusted in you and your death and your resurrection for their salvation, would you would you call them to yourself today? Would you give them faith and cause them to believe and be saved? Lord, thank you for calling us to a new and living hope. Thank you that no matter what sin lingers in our hearts or the hearts and lives of others, that no sinner is beyond the hope and the power of the gospel. We ask it all for your glory and our good in Jesus' name.